A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, after these things were finished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And after he went to Macedonia, two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, a major disturbance occurred in regard to the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for, of, of Artemis, was bringing considerable business to the craftsmen. He gathered these men together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. Not only is this not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began shouting, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's Macedonian traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his were, sent word to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry rose from them all as they shouted for about two hours. Greatness Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what person is there after all who does not know that the city of, Ephesian, of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from the sky? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius 
and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Have them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no reason, real reason for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we come here, Lord, because we need your word, and we ask that you give it to us in a way that we would let go of whatever we're holding on to, and that we would put Christ in his rightful spot in our lives, in our, in our households, and in our church. And we pray this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so, I, I'm going to first ask that, um, just as a as a preliminary, I haven't gotten much feedback on going through the book of Acts. I've gotten a few from people here or there. Don't give me feedback now. Uh, if I would really like some feedback as we go through the book of Acts. We pretty much have the premise that we should be looking at the book of Acts as the only historic model of the church that would lay a foundation of how we would operate through the ages. And um, and so that means we should be able to go through line by line, chapter by chapter, or, or the narrative and see what we're, how our community is supposed to operate. We're supposed to see what God is supposed to do in a community and how that moves us forward. And so we're getting into uh, chapter 19, into chapter 20 you know, next week, and that means we've heard a lot of the same things over and over. It's, it's getting filled with the Holy Spirit. It's preaching the gospel, repentance. Uh, lives changing, people, signs and manifestations of the Spirit, causes division in a, in a city, which brings about persecution, which brings about more outpouring of the Holy Spirit for, for preaching the gospel, signs, wonders, repentance, uh, and it's just a cycle throughout the whole book. And, and so if you just haven't got anything out of it, and you know, uh, let me know. I would like to know if you really haven't. If you just think it really stinks and it's not fun, let me know. Because uh, I'd like the feedback. And so I've been trying to work in some of the Old Testament promises that we see in the book of Acts that correlate to our, our main verse, uh, Acts 1, verse 8, which reads, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the church was birthed in such a way that all of the Old Testament promises where the Israelites, the chosen people of God, would be God's light to the world, and they failed, now it's successful. Now we had just have a, a systematic uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit in, in, into the kingdom of God that's going to engulf the whole world. And we're just working towards that and as, as God pours out his Holy Spirit. And so our Old Testament reading I have from Micah 5, verses 7 through 15. We're only going to read a selection of them, which uh, gives you the idea of the same thing in our reading today. Uh, the Lord is saying, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations." 
in the midst of the peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies should be cut off. And skipping to verse 13, And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And so we can see that in especially the carved images and how the Lord is, is cutting down the idol worship in, uh, in, in Ephesus here. So I'm just going to say I really like this. I really cinemize. Uh, I've got a sentiment towards the Ephesians in, in this chapter. I've always, you know, as a, as a young man, pre-Christian days wanted to be in a riot and none of them really need, kind of seem to know why they're there and they just want destruction and they just want, they're just yelling because they want to be loud and uh, it's almost like, man, like none of them know why they're here. They're just, there's a riot, let's, let's get in on the party. And so I often had that feeling as a, as a young man. To clarify, I don't anymore. <laughs> just so you know. Peace and order is, is what we're promoting. Uh, and so, as we look at as the reading today, it kind of gives us a, an opportunity to see that, that eventually, as Christian culture influences are in the greater society, um, and even on the, on the macro and on the micro scale, that there eventually is going to be a clash of kingdoms. And really, what they're saying is, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. There's either, we're either going to have these idols, or we're going to have this Jewish God, or we're going to have uh, Jesus as God. And we're not going to be able to live in, in the society with multiple idols. It's one or the other. You've got to choose. And so eventually, if Christians are doing their duty, there's going to be a clash of kingdoms. One of the uh, ways I think is a fruit of God doing something is, in your life is that you see a, a clash. It doesn't mean that you're always at odds with people and you're fighting and, 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 and that kind of scenario, but... There would eventually be in your own life, in your personal life, I'm either going to follow Jesus or I'm going to do this other thing. And, and we constantly have things that we're trying to hold in both hands. And so as you mature in Christ, uh, you're going to see that, that you, you have that clash internally in your own life where you're trying to hold on to things that are uh, against Christ or things that are, are for Christ. And you know, even, um, I think it's in First Timothy, uh, where, where Paul says that you cannot drink from the, the two cups. You can't drink from the cup of demons and from the cup of the Lord. And so there's eventually going to be a clash either in, in your work, in your family, and as Christian uh, society flourishes, and when we recapture Christian society in some way, we're going to have a clash of societies in, in Dayton, in the broader culture, as you saw with a uh, uh, with Paul in Ephesus. And so we see it on the micro scale in Matthew 10, 34 through 38, when our Lord says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. You're like, oh man, I really thought he was. That's what the angels proclaimed, peace on earth, goodwill to men. What's going on? He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Everybody gets that one, the daughter-in-law, mother-in-law thing. That one's a little bit easier to get. But, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me 
is not worthy of me. And so when you're living a Christian life, if you've matured in any way and, and started a new life in Christ, there's going to be a clash of, of kingdoms between people who are not of Christ and that you have relationships with. And if that's as you're coming to Christ, that means you have to, uh, you're not hanging out with the same friends or they want to continue doing the same things uh, that are ungodly. And then you say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And there be, starts to be a clash. And um, that happens a lot in your early Christian days as you come to Christ or as you mature because the, the, the maturation uh, means that there has to be a division. There has to be a clash. And that's just frankly because the gospel is divisive. And so we get this going all the way back to Genesis 3 and the, uh, and the curse against the serpent when after God declares that I will put enmity between you, the, the woman, you and the woman, I'll put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. And so this is why jumping to the New Testament in John chapter 8, he can call the Jews who are seeking to kill him sons of the devil. And he quite, and so, like, man, Jesus wasn't really, he really said he wasn't here to bring peace but a sword, and that's a good way to bring it, I guess. Call people sons of the devil. Uh, and I'm like, no, we're Jews. We don't do that. And, and so that's why Jesus can say, you're sons of the devil. And so if you've ever uh, read through Genesis in, in the first three chapters and you see the serpent character, and it's like, you don't see him again. He's gone. Where'd he go? And so the narrative isn't following the serpent as a character, then the narrative then switches to there's this genealogy and this genealogy. And from the very beginning, when the Lord and the Lord in creation, the Lord is dividing. There's two people groups. There's the people of the Lord and there's the people of the of the serpent. And so and he says very clearly, there's gonna be enmity between them. There's gonna be strife. It's, it's they're not gonna be able to live together, right? And so you always follow in your father's footsteps. So when Jesus calls the Jews sons of the devil, it's because they want to kill him. And they're like, no, we're not trying to kill you. Uh, we promise we want to do that. Just prom we promise. Uh, but it's because they're doing what their father does. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so, so we're looking at in, in that, there's always a, a division. There's a separation. And when those two people groups, those two ideologies come together, there's always enmity. And because division is part of God's creation. And as like we said, he's divided the earth into two people groups from the very beginning. And so usually when God is creating, he's separating light from darkness, the waters above to the waters below. He's separating the dry land from the waters. He's separating the two people groups. And so when he's recreating, there's usually a schism that happens beforehand. There's usually some kind of separation. Which is why when you get two different people groups together, they have two different worldviews. And that's what you experience early in your Christian life is you're coming out of one worldview into a new worldview. And you'll experience division and you'll experience the, the you choose the cup of demons or the cup of the Lord uh, because you are taking on a new worldview. You know, it's always, um, I remember that it's always fun looking at Christians who are just starting to mature or, or new in their faith and starting to read through the Bible for the first time. And I remember reading through 
parts of the Bible, and I was like, some, some things were like, what do I do with this? But a lot of it was like, I didn't know that. This is what I got to do. Like, that's, <laughs> like I kind of like submitted my life to Christ and promised to follow him, but I didn't know what that was. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, if I would have known this, maybe I would have tried to bargain a little bit better or something. But, uh, you know, you read Proverbs about the wise man and the foolish man, and you're like, oh, that's me. I guess I got to change to not do that. And... And it's, it's fun seeing people mature through that, and it's, uh, but it's because there's a, there's a clash of kingdoms going on in yourself, right, as your worldview changes. And so at the center of these worldviews, at the center of, of worship, is, is a God, and, um, and from out there stretch out, uh, we create schools, we create businesses, we, we create forms of worship, what's right and wrong, we create economics, we create laws. And so, because the, the worship of a deity is at the center of every culture, is at the center of every church, is at the center of every individual, every family, every society, and so we create these things that, that flow from that, right? And so, consequently, you can work your way backwards and look at a nation's laws, look at, a, look at the rules in a household, you could look at uh, how a, a family interacts, and you could stream, you can go upstream and look at uh, who their God is, right? You can identify in, in any system or any, any society, in a school, a personal business, uh, whatever, based on how they live, how they interact, what their laws are, or, or what's their central God, what's their central ideology and, and worldview. And so when you look at what we're fighting against in a post-Christian world is that our culture our, our cultural God is the God of secularism and humanism. And so when we look at um, in Ephesians, when this riot breaks out, it's, it's this pantheon of gods in the Greek and Roman culture. And it's hard to tell if Demetrius really believes that Artemis is that great, but uh, it's gonna, he's going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> Right, we, it's hard to say whether he really cares about Artemis's name and the city worshiping Artemis, or if he cares more about getting the money from producing idols and, and making money. So, whether he's uh, really just a secular guy who loves money, or or really cares about Artemis, it's not too clear. But I, I think it's the money thing. And so, so our God of secularism. Um, is the predominant God in our culture, uh, is that we will be our own God deciding what good and evil is. And so the problem is that just doesn't work. The problem is you see, especially in the last two, three years, that it's just going into chaos. And you either get Christ or you get chaos. Either what we're coming to is an eventual Christ will be put on his, his rightful place as Lord over the whole nation, in every law, in every area, in every sector, or it's just going to keep going into chaos. There's no other, uh, there's no options. And you can see, if you just turn on the news, that it's descending into chaos. And so what we have to capture is that there's, is that the evangelical world has to recapture, is that there's not a neutral place in our society, in, in the broader sense. There's not a neutral place in our family, in our households. There's not a neutral place in our individual lives. All of it has to be submitted to Christ or it descends into chaos. There really is, in my life, 
Not, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. For, it's not big enough for me and, and for Christ, for what I want and what Christ wants. And that happens on the individual scale. Either you'll see if, if I choose humanism or, 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 or a, a facade of Christianity where it's really me doing whatever I want, then my life will descend into chaos. And that might be kind of slow, and, but you'll see as my kids get older that their lives will have even more chaos. And my grandkids would have an, an even more amount of chaos in there. So there's really, what we need to capture is there's no area of neutrality in the entire universe. Um, I think it was Abraham uh, Kuyper, if you're familiar with Kuyperianism, I guess, uh, without going into... Anyways, he was a theologian uh, who... There was a phrase he coined that says, there's not a square inch of the universe that Christ doesn't command and say, mine, it's all his. Every square inch of it is his, right? And so we recite in the Nicene Creed every week, and we say, we believe in one Lord. And you guys should have that memorized by now. And so we believe in one Lord. And, right? and that means that there really isn't any other Lords. We just believe in one. And, and so that's important, right? So Colossians 1, 15 through 16, uh, again, Paul says, he is the image, speaking of Christ, image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of these things are subject to the Lord Jesus. We recite in the Nicene Creed every week that there is one Lord, there is not two Lords, there is one, that's the Lord over our church, that's the Lord over our nation, that's the Lord over my life. That's the Lord over the speed limit. That's the Lord over the governments. That's the Lord over everything. There can't be two lords, right? It's either you submit to the Lord uh, or you submit to, to something else, right? <clears throat> and so what we have the hope in is that we've are the Lord, that Christ has already proclaimed that he is Lord. He's already done it. He's already accomplished it. He doesn't have to do anything else. And we're just proclaiming what he's already done and pressing that out in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in the, in the surrounding region. Right? Our hope is that as Christ is Lord, we would see him become more Lord over every area going down till the end of history, until he is Lord of all, until we see him Lord of all, right? until it becomes evident to everybody. Right? And so we evangelical Christians are about like a hundred years late in the game. For the last hundred years, uh, we have kind of submitted to the idea that the public sector or, or the culture, that there's areas in our lives that are neutral. And that if we just accept Jesus in our heart and we profess that he is Lord, and we say that personally, but we don't mean like he's going to be like, really be Lord anywhere, but he's like sort of like a personal Lord and that all will be good that we can just all play nice and get along. But, but that's not the case. And so uh, I, don't, I wouldn't normally do this on a Sunday morning, but go ahead and throw the picture up there. We won't have it up there too long. I wanted to give you guys a visual representation of... Has anybody seen this before, if I didn't show it to you? I got a couple. Just a couple. So this statue is erected over the state courthouse in New York City, currently. This is 
the current statue that they put up over uh, the courthouse. Now, if it was like someone's personal house, I'd be like, <laughs> you're weird. Art is uh, interpretive. That's cool. But just to give a, we're not even going to interpret it too much, but just look at it for a minute. There's the next to, so they have, I think, seven um, other lawgivers throughout history. None of, only a couple of them are Christians. Uh, and then they replaced it with one of them. So to give credit, it is part of an art exhibition. It's not going to be up there permanently. And it's there for a short period of time, and there'll be other art ex- expositions, but it's placed next to uh, those older statues of great lawgivers throughout history, one of which is Moses. There's also, uh, at one point, just contextually, they did have one of Allah up there, but the Muslims actually wanted it taken down because that's a blasphemy law thing. But, and so they're doing this thing where that was the first one they decided to put up there, right? And so just to give you an idea of where our, our culture is at, um, or how effective in, in New York the Christianity is. Uh, these are the artist's words um, with, that, with that statue. So She said that she is a fierce woman and a form of resistance in a space that has historically been dominated by patriarchal representation. And the artist also, the name of the statue is now calling for change that needs to happen immediately with an inscription that says, Hava, uh, meaning in a couple different languages, various things, but the artist said uh, to breathe, to add air, or to change a narrative. And when questioned on the name Eve, the artist responded uh, that Eve was also the first lawbreaker, right? And so they have a public display of, of a, a statue, an idol-type figure that looks a little bit like Medusa uh, with some kind of snaky arms, um, with the direct correlation to overthrow the, the current law system uh, and way and the, the current narrative, the patriarchal system and representation to a new thing. And so you always have to ask, what's the new thing? Well, I, I could probably tell you what's going to come down the pipeline of that, but it's, it's secular humanism that we decide what's right and wrong. And so when you have a, a culture that's centered, all, all cultures are at the center of every culture is worship of a deity. And eventually you get to a, a material, you either get to an idol, you get to something. There's something material that the, the culture, when you're um, especially not following Christ, you get to some kind of material representation of that. And so what they're directly resisting is our current uh, Christian laws that have been passed down for generations, right? What they want to overthrow is, if you ever, just a little blurb, if you're ever into politics or looking at the news, if they ever throw in colonial, like we're trying to overthrow the colonials, is they just replace colonial with Christian, and that's what they mean. Uh, it's directly related, right? What they're trying to throw is in, is in order where we have a standard of right and wrong, a standard of righteousness, what they're trying to do is proclaim that we can do whatever we decide, right? But none of this is neutral. It's all pointing back to something. You can't just erect a statue and say that that's neutral territory. It's on the state courthouse. It's, it's none of my business how the artist wants to represent that. But, right? And so we, we as Christians, uh, we have, for about the last hundred years, have tended to take the idea of, like, we'll just play nice and you guys... 
as long as you don't bother us, we won't bother you, and, and, and whatnot. And that's, remember, frankly, that's not how Paul approached uh, evangelism. That's not how Paul built churches. Remember that quote from N.T. Wright? Uh, he said, everywhere I see Paul goes, he gets persecuted or he starts riots. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. Right? That's the kind of Christianity we've been a part of that isn't, that isn't sharp, that isn't divisive. And I'm not saying it has to, uh, you should go out there and, and try to make as many enemies, but when you preach the gospel, when you preach free grace, when you do what Paul did and said, your idols aren't worth anything. They're images. There's no gods. These aren't real things. They're not doing anything for you, right? People get mad, and it, it creates a division. And so we played nice for about 100 years, and as they took prayer out of the public schools, uh, they removed the Ten Commandments from courthouses, they started dismembering babies in the womb, we redefined marriage to be whatever you want it to be, right? We've just all kind of, kind of played nice, uh, culturally speaking, and and. Paul does commend us to, in Romans 12, 17, and 18 that we should, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so you have to reconcile that how do I live peaceably among our culture, right? Paul didn't, Paul, even when he was, he didn't start the riots. Uh, he didn't really start the riots. He preached the gospel faithfully. He discipled people. He preached free grace. He welcomed people in. Lives were changed, and people got mad. And I think he lived as peacefully as he could, and everywhere he went, there was a riot. <laughs> so I'd hate to see what would happen if he wasn't trying to live peaceably, right? And I even just love, uh, just as like kind of side blurb, I love that Paul was like, hey, there's a riot going on. There's a big crowd. I should go up and talk. I should, I should go up in the middle of this. And I think his heart was that there's a large crowd yelling Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. I think Paul had a heart that was like, I think if I were to preach that people would come to Christ. And everyone was like, no, 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 Paul. Like, well, let's just, let's sit this one out. Uh, let's pray about it. And we'll, uh, we'll see what we can, we'll find another place for you to speak <laughs> or something. Uh, but that was his heart. He's like, I think he was like, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of idol worshipers. I think he knew the spirit of what was going on, and he was like, I think if I preach, then God might do something, right? I think if I might tell the truth, I think if I might tell what Christ has done, then people might come to him and worship him, and it might, the riot might be, get bigger, and I might die, but people might come to Christ. I think that might have been Paul's attitude, right? And so we're not supposed to, in order to, to play nice and keep peace, forsake forsake Christ. It doesn't mean when you, when you live peaceably with, with all that, that that means forsaking what Christ has already said. That means, I mean culturally, I mean in your family, I mean in yourself. You don't make peace with idols and sin in your life so that it, it doesn't cause trouble. I won't have to like actually do anything if I can just make peace with my sin. Right? You can't have it, you can't make peace in that way and honor Christ. And so you have to reconcile that there's no areas of neutrality in our lives. It all has to be submitted to Christ. And, but you have to live in a peaceful way with other people, but it's going to cause trouble, right? And so we kind of like are in a society now where we rejoice where uh, they let a Christian cro like basketball coach play at a, or pray at a game or they allow the cross to be hung up somewhere next to like the, the public mosque. Um, and we kind of... Um, 
in a, in a conservative Christian way, rejoice that, like, oh, wow, they let this guy pray in the school, but they also let the satanic temple have teen meetings too, right? That's not really a win, right? All of it belongs to Christ. It's not a victory if Christ isn't put, uh, or it's not a victory if Christ is just put up there as an equal God among other gods. What the prevailing God over that pluralist society is just a God of secularism, that as long as you guys play nice, we can still be in charge, right? They say you have your God, and you have your God, and you guys got your God, and as long as you play nice, I will tell you how to live your lives, and we'll educate your children and, and make laws accordingly. Just play nice, right? But if Jesus is God, bow down and worship him. Follow him, right? If Jesus is Lord, put him in his rightful place, right? That's our duty as Christians. He is Lord. He's already proclaimed it. He's already done it. Now we bow down and worship him and impress that into every corner of our lives, right? If he is Lord of your family, we should be able to walk into your family any evening, and that should be evident. There should be signs of that Jesus is Lord. We honor God here. We follow him. His laws rule. We worship him, right? We treat one another like they're like they're the body of Christ in our families, right? We do it in our church. We should see that, right? So when we put Jesus in his rightful place, it necessarily means that other gods of the system have to move over. And so the, the universe abhors vacuums. If Christ is taken down from his rightful place in your life, in your household or family's lives, or in our church or society, if the Lord is removed from where his rightful place is, there will be another God, another desire, another something to take his place. And it doesn't take very long, right? It, and I don't know how sanctified you guys are, but uh, I could tell you if I, if I get away from daily Bible reading, like it's not long before like sin creeps in. It's really not. And it's not as if just if I hold, like in my own works, I could read the Bible and, and, and that saves me. It's, it's a constant reminding that I need Christ's words. I need his nourishment. And if I don't get it, I'm going to get nourished from something else. Something else is going to try to creep in and, and get me, for real. Right? It, it doesn't take long. If, if in your households or in your families, if you get away from household worship, from uh, eating together, from communing together, something else is going to creep in, right? We all hear the, um, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if we all, but, you know, there's a common scenario where even Christian families will, will spend evenings and evenings going to basketball games and, and football games and, and putting their kids in all kinds of different things and then neglect worship at home. And so those things aren't bad, obviously. Uh, I think team sports are great. Um, but if you're, you can't, if you can't do both, you got to pick one. If you can't reckon how to do this in your family, you end up having to pick one and because there's, there's a vacuum, right? And so uh, Christ puts it very poignantly in Luke 16, 13. If I haven't already said it, that no, one, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? There's, there can't be two masters. And that, again, that happens in your own life. That happens in your, in your households. That happens uh, in the society at large. 
And so, um, so looking at the society at large, I think the secular jihadists of our day, they know that very well. They know that you can't serve two masters, and it's just, uh, it's just becoming very evident in our culture. And as they're trying to systematically remove the visages of Christian America, right, they've, done a, they've done a pretty good job, right? That's because uh, you see the same thing in, with Demetrius and the, and the silversmith is that he, doesn't, he knows that if maybe we cause a little bit of trouble, we can push these people out and we can have our gods, we can still make tons of money and continue with our, our way of life, right? He wasn't trying to evangelize. He wasn't trying to play it nice. He wasn't trying to... Uh, reason with anybody. He was trying to start a riot to push the Christians out so that there wouldn't be a different God. There wouldn't be any competing gods because they didn't sell idols and they, so he can't make them and he can't sell them and make a profit. And so, so I think he knew that if Paul kept preaching that gods made with hands are not gods, that he was going to lose his wealth. He was going to lose his livelihood. It was going to be a, a change in, in culture and it wasn't going to benefit him. All right. So he wanted to push, push it them out, right? And so what you should be warned is if what we see in, in our culture, what we see in, in our time frame is blatant uh, idol worship, uh, you know, blatant, you know, um, if you ever go out to like a, a women's, you know, crisis women's pregnancy center and try to reason with people, you know, they're, you get pretty, it's one thing to view those things from like far away and we're praying for them or we're giving money for them. But if you go and actually go there and try to reason with people, most of them know they're murdering their babies and they don't care. Most of them know what's going on and, it's, and as long as it's kept in the dark, then, then it's all right. But most of them know what's going on. And so what's coming down our pipeline isn't unless Christians recapture the, the the public square unless we put Christ in his rightful spot in our own lives and in our church we're not going to have an effect on the culture unless we have family worship unless we're raising our kids putting Christ as Lord it doesn't matter because we're not going to affect the culture before we affect our own lives before we influence our family and so what's coming down the pipeline would be even worse right and so what we're experiencing is a pruning and so you have to make a choice you have to get in or you have to get out. That's the only options. And sometimes the Lord is gracious in dealing with individuals and, and families and societies of where he's, he gives them a lot of time, he shows them a lot of grace, but it, it comes to an inevitable conclusion. You're either, you're either in or you're out, right? Either put Christ and make him Lord or, or, or uh, be honest about who your God is, right? And so... so the Lord does that in a, in a pruning, out of, I think out of grace, to show us that where our hearts have gone astray. If we notice that, you know, it's been uh, I'm honoring other things above the Lord, if I'm in my own life, you know, constantly being tackled by other problems and, and, uh, and different things, and I'm holding, you know, my bitterness in one hand and trying to hold Christ in the other hand, or, or my laziness, or or discontentment, or whatever, then the, the Lord is doing that as a grace to you to show you, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve laziness. You can't serve discontentment. You, you can't serve whatever. You can't serve pornography. You can't serve anything and serve the Lord. He wants you, he, you can't hold them both in your hands. And so you either put Christ in his rightful place, 
and you press that into every corner of your life and society, or you take the God of the day and descend into chaos. That's what the scriptures point to over and over and over. And if you were just, uh, if you were to look at historically, if like, you always kind of wonder, like, where did these, like, cities go? These cities that Paul preached to that, like, you know, started churches and uh, there's Christian communities. Like, where did the, the cities go? Because we know, we know just that, phone, that Rome fell and it descended into chaos and uh, most of the cities aren't the same cities anymore. And we're even still uncovering some of the architecture and archaeology, you know, and archaeological finds from, from some of those cities. And, and what matters is that the Christian communities built something that is lasting today. The Christian communities that honored Christ as Lord continue to pass that generationally down the line through societies, which is why we're here today, right? We wouldn't be here today if none of those communities did that, right? And the rest of the world will descend into chaos. The Lord allows that. But as his kingdom keeps spreading like the leaven in the lump, it's going to be less and less chaotic, right? That's our hope. And so as we kind of move towards the table today, what we're reminded is that Christ gave us the sacrament of the table before he was sacrificed. He did it for us already, right? He, gives, he comes and puts before you, you know, uh, just like Joshua, like, you know, standing, who are you going to serve today? If, if Moloch is God, serve Moloch. If Baal is God, serve Baal. But if Christ is God, serve Christ. And he's already made himself Lord. He's already offered himself freely. He's already done it, right? He's already Lord of this church. He's already Lord of your life. He's already Lord of your family. He's already Lord of Dayton. He's already Lord of, of Ohio. And he's already Lord of America. We're just waiting to see how he does it, how he does the rest of it, right? So as we come in and dine with Christ, we don't take this the bread and the wine as the remembrance of his sacrifice that he's already fulfilled all of the promises in us and then hope that we'll just eat enough grace to get us through the week and, and, and come back again and, and eat some more and, and hopefully it lasts till like at least Friday night or Saturday. Uh, I'd be happy with Thursday if it worked that way, but, but it doesn't. But we come that we get, we've already received grace and we're going to receive more. And when we eat this meal, we're saying we're dining with Christ. That we're at a supper where he's Lord and he's already invited us to the banquet. He's already invited us to the victory. He's already, if we're holding these things in our hands, he's already invited us and, and given us the grace to put him as Lord. And we just got to show up. So come to the table. Let's dine with Christ. <laughs>